This episode of Breaking Brave is brought to you by Crank Coffee, the newest member of the Neal Brothers family. Crank Coffee is a new Canadian whole bean coffee brand that is certified organic and fair trade, founded by the Neal Brothers, Peter and Chris. This brand was influenced by cycling, coffee lovers, and experts. Check it out at the Neal Brothers online shop and use our coupon code BRAVE for 20% off your first Crank Coffee purchase. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Marilyn Barefoot. Welcome to Breaking Brave. Today, I am just thrilled to welcome Kelly Faubert to the program. She has been called the best damn dog doctor out there. Kelly is an emergency hospital veterinarian in Montreal who has her own line of dog treats called Just Ones by Kelly the Vet. She has so much to offer and is such a wise and fascinating person. Please welcome Dr. Kelly Faubert. Dr. Kelly Faubert, welcome to Breaking Brave, Kelly. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Exciting being here. Oh, I'm I'm thrilled because I was actually saying before we started the show that one week ago we we got our 12-week-old puppy who is basically killing us as we're trying to train her. Um, let's start with what is it? exotic veterinary medicine? So you're in a vet hospital. What does a day look like in the life of Kelly Faubert? Let's just talk professionally because there's a whole nother bravery side of you on the personal level. Tell us about the veterinary hospital practice that you're involved in, please. So I'll back up a bit because to understand sure. my practice, you kind of sure. have to understand how veterinary medicine is specialized. So basically... Everybody who's a veterinarian has gone at least the same beginning branch. So we all do an undergrad, get into vet school, and then you do your core program. And much like in medicine, your last year, you get to decide what kind of branches you specialize in. So there's core uh, subjects that you have to do, but then you've got a few rotations in whatever you would like to do. So some people will do more, you know, family practice style medicine. Some people will decide to do more exotics medicine. Some people will do wildlife. Some people will do more cows, more more pigs, whatever you want. And then, so we all graduate kind of with the same basic training, but some of us have taken more courses in one field or another. Then you can go out and you're considered a veterinarian. And there's a way that you could specialize as well. So the year, you can either do another year where you do a year of extra study and it's called a rotating internship and you go through big hospitals like the one I work in or through faculties like big universities and you go through all the specializations much like in human medicine there's cardiology and internal medicine and surgery and dermatology and then you have like a year of extra training which you're a little more specialized and you can work at big hospitals like I work at and then if you want to keep going you can either then you would do a, a second a rotating internship in a specialization. So you could decide, I really want to work with exotic animals, which is considered everything that's not cats and dogs or livestock and farm animals. So um, so that would be considered exotics and zoo. And then, or you can go into surgery or whatever. And so you do one more year and then you do a three-year residency. So much like human medicine, you've got like your family doctor, which is kind of like your, your local veterinarian. And then you've got the specialists that have done another 
four to five years plus training in the specialty. So exotic medicine, for those who really do exotic medicine, they've done that extra four years after, four to five years after vet school to work in exotics. And so at my hospital, the ground floor is all the regular animals like cats and dogs, but the second floor, we have an exotics department. And so we've got two uh, specialists in exotics and wildlife, and then a whole team of veterinarians like me that have done a bit of specialty but aren't specialists that work under them. However, our hospital's open 24 hours a day. So when they're closed, they come to us. So I do mostly cats and dogs during the day, but then I can see. Basically, if it's a pet, I can see it. (laughs) So people usually, I see a lot of rabbits, a lot of ferrets, uh, guinea pigs, a lot of rats. Um, Every so often, I'll get like a turtle or a reptile. We rarely get fish, but yeah. So basically exotic is anything that's not considered dog or cat. Um, And the kind of hospital I work at, it's uh, every big city will have one. Um, Usually they're either associated to a university or they're a private practice. And what it is, it's where you go when your local veterinarian is closed. So we never shut. We're open 24 hours a day, every day of the year. And uh, you either come to us when you need an emergency that can't wait for your veterinarian or when your animal has a problem that's kind of gone past the capacity of a local veterinarian. Either you need specialists, a surgeon, internal medicine, a dermatologist, or you need CT scan, uh, MRI, big thing. So it's kind of like a human hospital. uh, And that's where I work at, one of those. (laughs) Wow. I knew peripherally that you have to be super smart to be a vet. Because the marks that you need to get into veterinary medicine and the years of commitment, but I'm not sure I realized from the specialist perspective, all of the years of commitment that 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 also involves. Most people don't, which is why I brought it up, because a lot of people show up at the Emerge and I'm kind of like the doctor that you see at the ER. So you cut yourself, you go to the ER, you'll see a doctor there. That doctor will stabilize you and then send you back to your family doctor for a follow-up or then keep you internally and dispatch you to a specialist. You'll go to surgery, you'll go to plastics, you'll go to whoever you need to see. And that's kind of who I am. So I'm that kind of emerged doctor, but on the pet side. <laughs> and so I take you, I stabilize you, and then I'll dispatch you to who needs to see you. Or if I stabilize you and you're ready to go home, I'll send you home and you follow up with your doctor. And a lot of people don't realize that's what it is. Even people that show up at our place, sometimes they don't realize where they're at. Um, and the thing is, veterinary medicine has changed tremendously in the last you know, two decades. Uh, the standard of care has gone up. The amount of research, the amount of knowledge we have, the amount of tests we can do. Uh, and so tons of specialties have sprung up. And we are kind of jack of all trades because we do multi-species. We do many different kinds of things. Uh, but it is getting more specialized as the years go on, much like in human medicine. Yeah. Wow. A million questions come to mind. Apparently about 900,000 Canadian adults got a pet since the start of the pandemic, which is actually about 3% of the entire Canadian population. How did, is this impacting you in your job? It's a fantastic question, actually. It's a, so COVID has been bizarre for us because uh, I remember when everything started to shut down and we were trying to see like who stays open, who shuts. And we were told that we were, uh, you know, needed, we we couldn't shut, we were um, 
part of the groups that would stay open. I remember going to work, you know, the highways being completely shut and getting to work thinking it would be dead for the next few weeks, you know, that people would stay home and, you know, we'd be very quiet. And it was the complete opposite. So first of all, everybody who hadn't spent their days at home with their pets, who now were working from home, all of a sudden were realizing, huh, they really don't get up or they're really not drinking or they're really not eating or they pant a lot or they cough a lot or all of a sudden people were noticing their pets. So think of a day you get up, you're rushing to get your kids to school, you're rushing to get to work, you take your dog out quickly, you bring it back, then you're gone all day and then you come home and it's an equally busy day mm-hmm. and you don't necessarily see or, or, or you're not able to observe how your animal's doing and then all of a sudden everybody was home. From the day the world shut down, we just got slammed. Everybody was coming in. And we were really worried, like, no one's going to have any money. And, you know, like, people are going to have to euthanize. This is, like, really sad. But it was the opposite. All of a sudden, people weren't traveling. People were home. And it was the opposite. People were adopting. People were bringing their animals in. People were like, this is the time to do a full workup. Something's wrong. And so we got really, really busy. And what happened was big centers like us, we're essential and we operate 24 hours, but smaller veterinarians were having uh, staff shortages because they'll have maybe one or two vets and maybe three or four nurses. We call them technicians. And then with like kids and testing and this and that, they were having reduced hours. They had to shut. And so everybody ended up at the ER. And so for the first time in my life, it was such a parallel between the human hospital system we have in Canada and I was like, people were showing up with benign problems that, they, and they just couldn't get an appointment at their vet. And so nobody could get vaccines. Nobody could get annual checkups. There was no appointments. And so everybody was ending up at the ER. And so I, and so the wait times went from two hours to three hours to six hours to 12 hours. And recently we've had to triage and we have to send, you know, non-urgent people home because we just couldn't, we're just over capacity. And so it's been a really weird year and a half because it, we're we're basically going through the exact same thing. Whereas if there's not enough family doctors for humans, everybody ends up at the ER with their problems. And if there's not enough family practice veterinarians or for all these new adopted animals and all the sick animals, then everybody ends up at the ER. And I feel like I'm just patching holes at this point, but they don't have anybody to take care of them. Um, and so the whole thing too is there's a lot of uh, vaccines that you give puppies um, that we've people have not been able to get their basic vaccines. And we, so we're seeing a lot like in the last few weeks, uh, parvovirus, which is like a pretty bad uh, gastrointestinal virus. We've seen a lot of them. And, and it's not that people don't want to, it's just they can't get, they just can't get an appointment to get their vaccine. So it's been a really interesting year and a half. Um, and yes, and the whole puppy adoption thing is everybody has adopted puppies and it's been absolutely amazing however we're all living a kind of abnormal life where we're all home a lot and so our concern is when life goes back to normal and people aren't working from home and these puppies who have had their you know socialization period with a whole family in the house and everybody leaves goes to school goes to work and they're home alone for the first time ever what's that going to do to animal behavior and so that's something I was actually started to write a book called The Puppy Pandemic. <laughs> I love this idea, Kelly, because yeah. totally there's, and, I, and this is why I'm so excited to have you on the show, because I, I think people know, oh yeah, everybody got a dog or a cat during the pandemic. But okay, beyond the surface of that statement, what are the ripple effects of that? 
Yeah. So I think it's a great idea. You know, like they do relieve stress. They get you out of the house. They get you moving. Think anybody who owns a dog knows you you get out of the house in the worst weather, in the rain, in the snowstorm. If I didn't have my dog, I would not take two long walks a day. And so there's there's so many benefits. Uh, you know, they, there's studies that show that kids that grow up with dogs have 30% less allergies. You know, it's it, there's so many benefits to have a dog. And I'm super happy that everybody adopted them. Uh, but it has created some problematic in that the adoption has been quicker than the amount of vets that we that graduate every year. And so there's a little bit of a, a disconnect between the availability of veterinarians and the amount of animals that are, are there. And also, you know, if you think of a kid, they, you know, it takes 10 years for a child to like develop its socialization. Like those, you have those few years in the beginning, those toddler years, they're very essential, but you have to kind of jam pack all that in a puppy in like a few months. So socialization is super important because at a certain amount of time, their behavior is going to be, you know, kind of concrete. You're not going to be able to change that. And a lot of adoptions were right in the height of the pandemic when people were home. So these dogs haven't seen people with canes, people in wheelchairs, people with limps, people with hats, with beards, with scars, people, you know, and so there's a lot, what I'm noticing is I've never been growled at more or like attacked more by puppies in clinic. And it's worrisome to me because it's fear-based and it's because there's been this lack of socialization because of the abnormal conditions under which we've adopted animals this past year. So it's, uh, what I want to do is I want to create kind of like a guidebook to help people of how to go back to normal and what to do with your pet during that. Yeah. It will be a New York Times bestseller <laughs> because we've never gone through this before. No. So there is no, there's like, there's no guidelines for human beings, but certainly there's no guidelines in terms of what you've just explained with respect to the pets that have been adopted and kept relatively sheltered and not experienced garbage cans and all the things that could be scary out there, right? Yeah, and things are scary. And, and I mean, most animals, it's anxiety, like a true, true aggressive dog. It, you pick it out when they're puppies, they've got abnormal behaviors, they don't respond in a normal puppy way. So most aggression we see is the result of trauma and it's anxiety induced. And um, and so it's most of it, you know, you preventable if we take the right measures, but sometimes if you rescue or if you adopt late, then a lot of that's already imprinted on the animal and there's not much you can do. But, well, not much you can do. It's already there, and you have to work hard at kind of reinforcing behaviors you want and making the animal feel uh, a lot better and more secure. And so we adopted a 150-pound old English Mastiff when he was, uh, we don't really know, about a year and a half. Um, and he was so terrified that we couldn't even walk him. We were in Vancouver at the time. We brought him home from the clinic. Uh, I couldn't even walk him on the sidewalk because bikes and cars and noises that he just kept like collapsing on the sidewalk trembling this is a huge 150 pound dog and I always say that dog in somebody else's hands could have been a menace like super dangerous a dog that fearful yes. is super yes. dangerous but he yes. got adopted by a vet student and he grew up in a house where like my days were I was a student so like every day was the same and I was home a lot and he was with me nonstop. and he's 13 now and no one would ever know that he had like the worst anxiety I've ever seen in a dog. So you can, you know, you, you can fix it. You can work on it. There's things that can be done, uh, but you you need a lot of effort and you need guidance. So that's kind of, I think what we're looking at in the next few years for, uh, we're going to have to work really hard at, at trying to, you know, remedy some of the 
problems that the pandemic caused in our animal adoption. Absolutely. Um, Kelly, this is Dante the Mastiff. Am I right? I hope that's okay if I mention his mm-hmm. name. Um, do you know his backstory? Oh, or, <laughs> or could we hear his backstory? Because yeah. <laughs> now, now I've already, with your story of he was terrified of everything when you were trying to even just walk him on the pavement, this is a big dog. I mean, hopefully it's not too upsetting, but no. what happened? What was his backstory? So <laughs> it's it's quite comical now. We're looking back on it. Uh, so I was in probably second or third year vet school. And I was living in Vancouver. My husband now, my boyfriend back then, was working in a clinic in Vancouver. And I worked in the the vet clinic behind his office. And uh, one day I came into work. My job was to come in and and take all the animals that were hospitalized out for a walk before the day started. I walk into the kennel and there's this beautiful, giant dog, but giant. (laughs) And I open the door and he is trembling and growling at me. Uh, My job is to take him out for a walk, but I could see he's terrified of me. And I'm a bit terrified, well, a bit (laughs) terrified of him because he's gigantic. So I slowly lasso the leash around his neck and I take him out for a walk. Uh, At this point, I have no idea why he's here. I don't know who he is as a patient. Um, And it was funny. I... If he walked behind me, he was okay. But as soon as I was beside him or, or in back of him, he'd hit the deck and he'd collapse on the ground and tremble. So he was, he was clearly very traumatized by something. Um, took him out for a walk. And the story is that it was a young... I, we worked in um, a suburb of Vancouver called Langley. So it's kind of between rural and suburban. So you've got farms, but you also have housing developments. And it was this young man that had uh, three dogs, Dante, his brother, and another large dog. And they were kind of semi-running free and they kept running into the neighbor's paddock and ch- chasing the sheep. And so when a bunch of dogs get together, they're going to have a pack mentality and they're, and they're going to chase animals. It's kind of normal for a pack of dogs. And and they injured a baby sheep, which after died of its injuries. And so the city came and took all three dogs and got them assessed. And Dante was deemed too nervous and too anxious to be adopted and must be euthanized. And so the veterinarian... They brought him in to be euthanized and the veterinarian was like, absolutely not. This makes no sense medically and had agreed to like take him on as his own. And he had to be taken out of Langley because he was deemed a dangerous dog. And since I was a vet student from Montreal and I was flying back to Quebec, it was one of the ways that we could get Dante, well, like avoid having him euthanized. And uh, he was, he's a a gentle giant, but he, he was terrified. And so why he was so traumatized, I don't know that, but that is how I ended up getting him. So I worked with him for about a month. And then at one point, I just, I couldn't bear not keeping him. I just, um, so we brought him home and he became ours. And that was when he was a year and a half and now he's 13. <laughs> oh, thank you. Such a nice, happy ending. Yeah. God it, bless you for doing that. When you talk about adoption... And, and the pandemic and all the 900,000 Canadians who got a pet, not all of them obviously adopted, but have people come in to you with an animal, like literally in tears saying, I have no idea what I was thinking. This is so much work. I don't know what to do. Can I give them back? Because I've got to believe that in my personal experience, you know, puppies are cute and puppies are wonderful. And, and, and then you, you get them home and you really do realize exactly how much work they are and exactly how much trouble they get into. And maybe there is a buyer's remorse moment that comes with a pet. 
I don't know. Have you seen that, Kelly? I am lucky enough that because I'm emergency and uh, a lot of those would probably not come through me, I've seen a bunch of people that probably are feeling it but haven't vocalized it to me. Um, The beauty about there being such a demand for dogs is if you do get a dog from a breeder right now or from an SPCA, first of all, um, SPCAs and shelters will do a very, very good job at screening who adopts because the last thing they want is to have to do it all over again. So there's always like a joke that it's harder to adopt a dog than a child. It really is hard to adopt a dog. You really need to meet the criteria. And it's exactly for that reason. Most of the times they don't want to put the dog through stress and then have them come back. So they do an excellent job at avoiding that, but I'm sure it still happens. They would probably go back to shelter. So I wouldn't see those. Um, As for breeders, there's lists waiting for dogs for years and years and often breeders will take them back so if you that's the beauty of it if you if you have a puppy and they're they're you know they're pretty young they're pretty malleable if you realize really quickly that it it doesn't jive with you most times the breeders will take them back and have them adopted again um what i see more often and it's a bit more sad it's not so much that they don't want the dog it's that they haven't realized how expensive it could be if an accident happens and they hadn't budgeted that. So I have a lot of like young roommates that are in their young 20s that adopted an animal together and then the animal gets sick and like really sick or gets hit by a car or falls. I've had one fall 22 stories, like cat fall 22 stories. like, And then they come in and uh, they just didn't realize at what point, you know, veterinary medicine, how much it costs. Cause we, we have public health care, so we don't see the bills. So we don't know, you know, when we get fractured and end up in a cast and need radiographs and antibiotics and everything, we don't know how much that costs. And so I think that is what people don't realize. Like you assume you're going to have this healthy dog and then, you know, puppies, the worst is puppies that they eat everything, right? So the amount of uh, dogs that need to go into surgery for obstructed intestines from socks and underwear. And, and that could be pretty devastating because when you need a surgery at 2 a.m. and, and you know, life and death is... It, it, we, we were pretty good at trying to, like, find ways, you know, plan B, plan C, plan D. <laughs> um, but, yeah, sometimes it's... I think that's what people haven't realized. Uh, a lot more people are getting pet insurance, um, and I explain, it's like all insurance. If you never use it, you might pay for it for nothing, just like you do with your car. But if you need it, you'll be very happy. And you have it. And it literally often is a question of life and death for a lot of pets. So um, the one thing about our job that's a bit different than medicine is that I always have that aspect I have to consider. So there's, you know, you learn what you need to do to diagnose a patient, to treat a patient. But the reality is, Sometimes you can't do what you need to do because we just don't have the budget. And so we're very, we're on our toes a lot to come up with plan B, plan C, plan D. And, and uh, you know, sometimes plan D works <laughs> and we get to save the animal. And so one thing I'm proud of of my profession is we're really hands-on with the animal. Like our, they don't talk to us. And sometimes the owners don't have all the information about, you know, their pee, their poop, their appetite, their this, their that. So I really, when I examine a patient, my hands are on it. And I'm like, really, really, we were very hands-on as a, as a, um, I'm looking for the word in English. 
as a profession. Yeah, I was going to say metier, career, profession. And so it's kind of like old school medicine where it's like really, really individualized for your patient. And I think that's really cool because we we really do give a patient-specific medicine. Like we really do consider who's in front of us. Like uh, it's a bit of a tangent, but I always say like when we have a hospitalized patient at work, they get three. Every time there's a shift change, the veterinarian does a full exam to every single patient. And that's a lot of hands-on. Like that's that's a lot more than we get in the human system. And I'm I'm pretty proud of how how much how hands-on we are with our our patients. And we we need to because they don't talk to us and they can't tell us how they feel. So we really have to have this kind of intuitive feeling about how they're doing. And it kind of it's probably it can't be really taught. It comes with the years, but it's probably the coolest part of our job. I think <laughs> I can tell how much you love it. And the passion that you have for it. And as a pet owner, I, I, I get such a great sense of calm from you and a great sense of confidence from you. And you must put all these pet owners and pets at such ease when you speak to them and when you deal with their precious family member. It's, it's a huge part of being a veterinarian. Like it's, uh, for me personally, I put a lot of emphasis into taking the time with the owners. It's hard because it, it it's emotional. It's hard conversations. Any conversation about money is never easy. And a conversation about money and life together is it's not fun to have. Um, but I take a lot, I, I do take a lot of time with the families that I, I see. Um, Cause it's, it's working in the emergency setting. I'm not seeing have a lot of happy stories, right? I'm seeing kind of the worst case scenarios. Uh, but more often than not, it's a happy, it's a happy ending. <laughs> Thanks to you. Thanks to you. And so I'm going to weave in the bravery word here. You get up and go to work in a hospital where you're seeing not just, hey, we're here for our annual or semi-annual shots or blood work or flea and tick. We're here because our cat just fell off a 22-story building. That takes a lot of bravery to me because I think it would be harder for me personally to be a vet than a human doctor. The emotional piece of it, you have to park, I'm guessing, so that the professional Dr. Kelly Faubert is fully present for the family and, and for the animal. What does bravery look like for you, Kelly? Um. In the clinic, I think it's trusting your gut and like having confidence in that what you feel or what you think you should do is right. And I was pretty lucky that my my life course to becoming a vet was very long and convoluted and I became a vet later in life. And so I was lucky enough to, to get here with a lot more life experience than a lot of people get when they graduate. I would imagine it must be pretty tough if you're very young and you don't have a lot of life experience to be able to kind of just really go, you know, like really, because you, you don't have a lot of time to think. Uh, you have a lot of cases, a lot of people to see, and you you have to kind of trust your gut and trust that you're right and things are complicated. <laughs> and so brave to me, I guess, would be just to kind of, uh, in French, we see false. I'm trying to think of the word in English, like just you know, like lean in or just like, just go with what you're thinking and trust it and get out of your head. I guess that's what it it is. Um, Not be afraid of hard conversations, not being afraid of speaking truth. Um, 
to be honest, you're kind of on adrenaline when you're at the clinic. Uh, everything's really fast and uh, it kind of helps. So like you're out of, you, you're just out of your head just because you, you don't have time. So it's a little bit fast paced. Uh, it's probably not the healthiest lifestyle long term, <laughs> but because you're on adrenaline, um, you're able to just make decisions quicker. But I often say it's funny because I train a lot of when the new vets come in they're they're paired with us for about a year until that they work on their own. And uh, I think the thing I emphasize the most, I don't quiz them over their medicine. They know their medicine and they know their differentials and then they all know all that. But I just kind of ask them like, what do you think? And why do you feel that? And, and trust your gut, you know? Um, I think that's probably one of the most important things about our job. Instinct right is is teaching them that trust that they've seen it enough done it enough they're knowledgeable enough book smart enough around it that the the gut the instinct that sixth sense is something they have to learn how to be comfortable with cuz the, the reality is like a lot of coughs and sniffles and and worried parents end up at the ER and and there's there's very very grave emergencies that end up at the human ER the the one thing is that because I'm an emergency clinic and because animals can't explain to us that they're not feeling well, everybody ends up at our place when it's like the animal's so bad that they can't wait till tomorrow morning. So like it's like every case that we see is is a pretty heavy case, especially during the pandemic. We've turned or, turned away like coughs and ear infections and things like that. So um, I could have uh, an animal in respiratory distress and then two seconds later have an animal that with a fracture I need to put a cast on and then I might need to unblock a cat in procedure. I might need to close a wound and then you might have to do like, it, it just, what comes, the porcupines on one, you might have a turtle, then you might have a lizard. Like it's just, it's always like you're on your toes. You never know what you're going to get and and so, yeah, so it, it's pretty exciting in, in that sense. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to visualize it. I'm trying to visualize it. And yeah, there's there might be a lot of Red Bull involved and maybe not just because your body is producing that kind of adrenaline because every single life that you're touching counts and you're doing your best even if there isn't a, a really huge budget to make sure the animal ends up with a happy ending in this situation. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about your work with Silver Paw and what you do with Silver Paw. Um, first of all, maybe you can tell us what is Silver Paw and what is a CSO, Chief Science Officer? What do you do there as, it, like, as if you needed more in your life? Because here we go down the second, if you will, parallel career path. Let's talk about that for a few minutes now. It's a, it's a, funny, it's a funny story, actually. So uh, Silver Paw is like a family-owned business that was started in Montreal. So, uh, like, the Miller Boys. It's like a, a family of boys. Um, so it started with their parents. There's two brothers that started a company, and they they patented this silver lining formula that they it was like a silver thread they would put through a cloth, and they made baby garments out of it. And it was, like, called a silver shield technology, and it's a natural antimicrobial. And so they made, you know, babies' clothes and stuff. And, and uh so this is like a, a brother duo that had started this company, you know, many, many, many years back. And then they each of these brothers had boys. So it's a family of boys. This is second generation. And the oldest of the cousins decides, how about we take this technology and we we make pet stuff with it? He had just graduated from university. 
Uh, I think like a lot of his, you know, in business and he had done a lot of like research on the pet industry and he was like, we can use this for, for dogs. So they started to make uh, these really amazing coats that were full of this silver thread material and it's kind of a natural antimicrobial because dogs can kind of smell. <laughs> and so it's kind of like it takes away smells and it's, it's a really, really cool technology. And then they just started to patent all these kind of awesome things. So they've got like a little shield, little um, buttons on your coats where the UV is too high, it'll give you a warning. Or if, if it's too cold outside and you are at risk of frostbite, it'll give you a warning. So it's all this kind of cool technology that they put into their jackets and their leashes. And and so they're very innovative. And so, and it's really fun. It's like a, a family of brothers and uh, they have this little company going and they happen to be patients of my husband. <laughs> and my husband would come home for years being like, oh, you should hear this these stories and they're making this company and they're doing so well and it's awesome and he'd be chatting about it but we never kind of connected the dots and I guess after years of talking to me about it um the father like the who is now retired but he was with my husband and he goes what does your wife do and he said she's a veterinarian and they it's kind of like it clicked in his mind and my youngest was six days old when I got this email saying you know would you come in for a meeting we've got you know want to know if you couldn't help us and so they have this vision of starting a whole you know health line um but they needed somebody to kind of you know lead it because they didn't know anything really about foods and supplements and all that kind of stuff actually they didn't really know what they wanted they just really knew that they wanted to kind of like get into that and they asked me if I was interested and so at first it was a mat leave project I was like, sure, I'm on mat leave. Like, <laughs> why not? Um, and on a side note, like, since I became a mom, my medicine has changed a lot as well. Um, like, completely changed. And in my home, the way that I feed my kids and the way, you know, like, the way I raise them is really focused on, like, optimizing your your body's natural ability to heal itself. Like I really believe like the pillars of health are your nutrition, social interactions and exercise. And if you really focus on that, then the rest will kind of fall into place. And uh, it's kind of changed my discussion with owners in clinic. And I don't do much of that kind of medicine because I'm in the emergency. Uh, But I think my future probably will tend to go more in that direction. And I really believe that we need to kind of put more emphasis on the fundamentals of health in animals. And I, I think we need to put more emphasis on social interaction, exercise, food. And so it was kind of a passion of mine. So for my own dog, there's a lot of things that I've been buying and looking for. Uh, in on, and I go on the human side to get it. So it was this great opportunity to create products that I can't find. So uh, that I can't find in clinic and that I can't find in the store for my own pets and for my patients. And so anything I want, I am now creating, which is pretty cool. Uh, so we started with a line of treats um, that were a single ingredient. And just because treats are really hard, I've got a lot of patients with, uh, with dietary restrictions. And, and oftentimes the treats are what kind of throw them off their plan. Either they have allergies and then, or they're extra calories or whatever. So I, I wanted just really simple treats that anybody could understand. And then I, 
I really think every animal should have at least a probiotic and an omega in their diet. So I'm developing those. And then I'm going to be working with, you know, supplements for cats with stress that have urinary problems. So it's a really an opportunity for me to see a problem, a health problem, find a natural way to help it and then create a product to fill that void. So that's kind of my mission there. That's amazing. Thank you. Because until you're a pet owner, you, and, and, take the time to turn the package around in the store or in the clinic. The world in general is getting much more aware and informed about this. But wow, you're right. So, so, so needed. So these are called Just Ones because there's just one ingredient. So Just Ones by Kelly the Vet. And at the end of the podcast, we're going to do a little special thing for our listeners around these Just Ones. But I had to tell you that Yesterday, in preparation for our conversation, I went on your website and I ordered a whole bunch because of our now brand new 12 week old puppy. And you are what you eat counts for dogs just as much as it does for humans. How do you do this? So, we've heard I have three kids under five, I have a husband, I have a 13 year old Mastiff. I'm working with Silver Paw on all kinds of interesting innovations, specifically in the food supplements area for pets. And I'm an ER doctor and needing to be 1000% on for every two seconds, a different emergency with a different species of animals coming through my door. I'm, I'm exhausted listening to you. How do you manage all of this? How? Uh- <laughs> So, yeah, I think my goal now is to try to slow down a bit. (laughs) I'm not not surprised to hear that at all. So I've always kind of been this personality. If you met my mom, it would all... People who meet my mom are always like, oh. (laughs) Um, But I've always kind of like, I, I think I'm blessed to have high energy, lucky enough to have a good work ethic put in me. And to be honest, when a door opens, I just... I have to jump through it, like the, my curiosity and, and it's just, I guess it's the way I get excited by things. It's just even becoming a vet, it was like a door open and I jumped, you know? And so when this popped on my lap, I said, it's, it's too crazy. Like it's too, it's too crazy that over the last few years I've been all my reading, all my like continuing education, all my, like every podcast, every book I listen to is all about this. I had this like pull towards it and then all of a sudden this door opens and someone's offering me this opportunity to build what I'd love to build for them. Could I help them? And it was just kind of like, I I can't say no. And it's my pet project for sure. It's uh, so my ER, it's my job and I, and I do love it. This is kind of like my pet project where I've got carte blanche to do what I want, uh, do my research, but it definitely is a a very uh, steep learning curve. So I do it on my days off (laughs) from clinic. Like, like there is such a thing in your world as a day off, right? Okay. Well, (laughs) and um, I just, I get in and I, I'm focused and then I I get out and uh, it's, you know, probably takes a little longer than it would if I was doing it full time. But what's the beauty of it is that because it's a passion project and I'm doing it for me, it's fun. And so it's my me time, I guess. Yeah. And yeah, I'm super efficient when I'm there (laughs) and I try to put it all together. But yeah, so I've always kind of been doing many projects. I I try as much as possible to focus on home, the kids when they're here, 
slow it down when I'm here. And then when I'm not here and I'm at work, I just, I, I go in, I go in and I get out and I work hard, but I try to, I'm trying to reduce the hours there, but just work hard. So um, it's, I guess I'm learning <laughs> how I do it all. I'm, I'm still trying to figure that out. I'm trying to figure out the balance. I guess that's what. I'm, I'm amazed. I'm thrilled. I'm, I'm, you talked about the owners of Silverpaw, uh, the Millers. I had Lauren, Jamie, and Dylan. Do you have three boys? I do have three boys. Oh, no. I mean, I say that. I have a boy. And I, it's not that I don't love boys. I love, I love, I love boys. But something struck me that maybe on top of all of this, the three kids under five are actually boys, too. Mm, they are. So it's <laughs> funny. Yeah. So, yeah. So there's like at work. It's funny. I've got I'm the only one that uses the girls bathroom. So it's clean. <laughs> It's all boys. Uh, there are girls downstairs that do like the design, but upstairs I'm up with all the Millers and and I'm the only girl. Um, and it's funny. And it's they're a really close family. They're pretty. It's a pretty awesome family. Like it's pretty awesome to watch their interactions. How close they are with their parents. It's a family business. They work together. The cousins are there. The whole. It's pretty fun to be part of. It's pretty amazing what they're building. You know, it's now the second generation, and and Neil and Bram were the the fathers come into the office, they're still there helping. Um, it's a pretty awesome vibe and it's a pretty awesome project to be part of. You know, I'm pretty happy that they asked me to come on board. <laughs> well, their website is amazing. What a great business. How, how have your treats done? When did you actually officially launch them, Kelly, with the, the Just Ones by Kelly the Vet? When did they officially launch? Uh, last September, we launched okay. them. Um, you're going to laugh at this. So Okay. <laughs> I want, as soon as it has to like go to sales, I pass it off and I don't right. want to know. Okay. Because I, 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 so don't you care. don't really know how they're doing. Because <laughs> it's like, I don't want to know. Don't talk to me about that. And I, they probably roll their eyes a lot. I was like, I'm really here to put the product out. Like, that's really my job. I was like, if it does well, great. Like, I, and of course, like I, I have to consider all that. But what's driving me 100% is making something that I know should be out on the market. And then I pass it on to the Millers. <laughs> and then they, and they over do to the you rest. for the P&L statement, you. you guys. Yeah. And <laughs> so when I'm like finding new people to work with and new partners and fabricators and I'm, I'm working with some amazing companies, they ask me tons of questions and I'm always, I always chuckle and I'll be like, I'll have to bring a Miller in on this because <laughs> I was like, I'm a vet. I'll stick to what I'm good to. I'll let them do the rest. And it's a part, it has to be a partnership. So how do I do both? I don't do everything and I can't, I stick to what I'm good at. So Great. I do and the sciencey bit and then the business bit, I leave to them. <laughs> so excellent to me. And I've said from the beginning, I was like, I'm driven by the product I'm making. If I'm putting my name yes. on it. And I was like, whether it makes money or not, I that's not I don't care, and I don't want to know, and I don't want that to be an issue. I, I literally, and it's it's my pet project, and I I just believe that if I do it well and I do it with my heart, it will be fine. It'll work out. It'll succeed. And I was like, that's the only way I'll do it, and that's I I will not compromise. They've they've learned that I don't compromise on anything. Um, Good, because your clients depend on you not to do that. Yeah. And so I get that. Whether the cod is selling better than the apple, which is selling better than the chicken, not your problem, no. not your circus, not your circus. Yeah. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Kelly, did you want to be a vet from the moment you could speak? I mean, are you one of those kids that, you know, write a little or in kindergarten present, what, what do you want to be when you quote unquote grow up? Did you know? 
how'd you get into this? Yeah. Oh, that's a crazy story. We'd love to hear it. <laughs> love to hear yeah so I I always knew it would be with animals but I had zero interest to work in clinic and the reason was is that and it still is my passion I just I guess when you have your own animals you kind of like your your ideas change a bit but from when I was a kid I was like all about conservation and populations and so my undergrad and my honors degree and my master's everything is all about conservation and population studies so I I, my undergrad was called wildlife biology and it focused on how to better conserve ecosystems in order to support populations of animals so in the end what I'm most worried about or what I'm most concerned about is to make sure that everything gets a fighting chance on this planet and the only way to help a population the individuals don't matter too much but the population has to be healthy. And the only way to help a population of animals is to help its habitat. So that's where I started. So I I worked a lot um, in ecology and on like grasslands and looking at vegetation and how to optimize vegetation so it can carry the right um, animals on it. And so you look at endangered populations, what kind of ecosystem do they need? Do we have those in Canada? Are they preserved? What's the carrying capacity? All that kind of stuff. And then I moved to South Africa. That's funny, a funny story. I, After I graduated as a biologist, it's kind of hard to find a job as a biologist. I ended up teaching high school. And I remember I was there in passing and I remember somebody was kind of telling me that, you know, I was talking about, you know, bright-eyed 21-year-old talking about all my dreams. And somebody said to me pretty, you know, sternly that nothing, none of it was going to happen and I was going to find myself there when I was 50 and life's disappointing, rah, rah, rah. And I remember just swiveling on my chair and typing into Google, I'm going to be a wildlife management and University of Pretoria, South Africa came up. And I like, I applied that week just to kind of prove a point. And so I moved to South Africa and I did a degree in South Africa where I, which is amazing. So I got to like do a management plan for a wildlife reserve, basically. So I had to learn about South African vegetation and how to move, you know, populations of wildlife away from places to places, depending on, you know, predators and ticks and the grassland. So like I would assess grassland and if it was overgrazed, I would have to move herds here by putting water holes or salt licks. And like, if there was too many parasites on them, I'd have to like split up the herd. And it was all about how to manage a wild area in order to maximize the carrying capacity of animals on it because in South Africa and tourism and you want to maximize the amount of wildlife you can have and in order to do that you have to kind of like make sure nature is working as best as it can. So basically if the world was wild everything would be in equilibrium but the reality is is that we've got these small plots of wild area and they're not big enough to work in equilibrium so you kind of have to help them out. And so that's kind of the focus of what my my undergrad was. And so that's what I was working in. But the problem is you work with, with vegetation. You don't actually work with the animals. So as the years went on, I was like always working with plants and I wasn't working with, with animals. And then I, I continued my studies. I did a... Um, I did a strategic impact assessment master's and I was working on 
policy. And I found myself at the African Development Bank in Tunisia developing policy for development banks. And I was doing like consulting in East Africa. And I was at one point I was like, how did I end up in an office? Like, how did I go from wanting to work with animals to in an office writing policy for a development bank? I was just like such a wild, weird. And again, like doors opened, I jumped and I found myself And, and it was all amazing. And I got to live in crazy places and do amazing things. And I literally am proud to say like I I helped develop environmental policy for developing to microfinance in Eastern Africa. And that's like, I'm super proud of it. And it's amazing. But at one point I was like, I don't want to be in an office. Like I don't want to be on a computer. And I know that doing policy is going to help more probably than one-on-one, but I, I just felt like I wanted to get my hands dirty again. I missed the field. And then at the same time, I had a big breakup. And so if you've ever gone through a big breakup and it gives you that like, I can do anything I want in life. <laughs> so, so I applied. I applied to vet school more on like a screw you. I can do whatever I wanted. Like it was like one of those whims because at that point in biology, you, you need to have a PhD. Like you need to be a doctor to get the jobs you need. So I was like, well, either I go PhD or I go veterinarian. And then part of me was like, can I actually do it? Like, huh, you think? And I got in and so I just jumped and um, I was working. I applied to vet school halfway through my master's. And so I had to do my master's at the same time as my first year vet school. But I didn't tell my master's that I was in vet school and I didn't tell my vet school that I was in my master's degree. I hit it. And so I had to like, yeah, manage that. (laughs) But I survived. I survived, and uh, that's how I became a vet. (laughs) I'm really glad I asked that question. (laughs) That is an amazing story. It was pretty wild. I'm I'm picturing you jumping all over Africa. The vet school and the master's, was that in South Africa? No. So I did my honors degree in South Africa, and I came back to Montreal to do my master's, but the field research was in Tunisia, so in North Africa. And then I was there when I got into vet school, But at that point, I was writing my thesis. So I came back to write my thesis. And it was just lucky that I was writing my thesis. So I I could be writing from anywhere. So I was actually writing from vet school, (laughs) which was also in Montreal or in St. Hyacinth. So, But the crazy thing is I also went to vet school in French, even though I'm an Anglophone. So that was the other thing. So I had my dictionary. And I just remember my brain being so tired at the end of the day. Yeah. But my French got really good. So that's the good. <laughs> I, I made the assumption without asking that Faubert, being your last name, that French was the first language for you. No. So my mom's Anglophone and my dad is Francophone. But my dad okay. met my mom because he was a hockey player and he had a scholarship to the U.S., but he couldn't speak English. So he redid grade 11 in the neighboring town in English so that he could learn English. And then he met my mother. Because this is back when, like, there was little English towns, little French towns, and the Anglos yeah. and the Francophones didn't really intermingle. So, yeah. So my mom was marrying a Frenchman, and my dad was dating an Anglophone. <laughs> Anglophone. And, and they ended up moving to the States. And then when they came back to Canada, I was born in the States, actually. I was two when we came back. Um, my dad was just so terrified that we'd never learn English, because it had really set him back. Like, he was pretty good in school. And then when he, when he realized, like, how... He just was like really worried that we would never learn English because we lived actually in a little 
small town. So he put us in English school. So my education was all English. So my conversation French is fine. But the thing about French is that the conversation French and written French are like two different beasts. English is English, but French, like even now, sometimes I get government documents and I'm like, oof, my head hurts. (laughs) So yeah. But the beauty is that medicine is mostly Latin. So whether you're English or French. Oh, good. You learn oh, yeah, that. Makes like, it. So, so like, Don't you think that yeah. makes it easier? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the funniest thing is I, I always laugh because when I came back from my mat leaves, you know, like you just have like severe mom brain and like my medicine's fine, but my words aren't there. And I'd be like, oh, can't we just call it blood in the eye? Like, do we have to have this like create, like, why do we have these crazy Latin terms? We talk to each other in these crazy Latin terms. Like, can't we just call it like swelling in the elbow like like, like my brain's too tired to remember all these latin terms and so um we still joke about that sometimes because i'll be looking for you know the we call it instead of like salivating it's stalism and then sometimes i'm like why do we do this to ourselves (laughs) why do we talk in in these crazy latin based language to sound smart it's hard enough what we do I was to say, oh, English, no, French, no, Latin, yes. That's a tough brain journey to be taking in a millisecond. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so tangent, you, your dad, hockey player, scholarship to the United States. Now we're going to ask about him. Yeah. Did is he a what? Where did that hockey career go or not go? So he it did. So my dad played hockey for the Pittsburgh Penguins actually for like eight years. Come on. Yeah. Unfortunately, in the time of the mullets and the no helmets and the the, uh, the no salaries, <laughs> so yeah. like I I think actually it's a blessing because like I grew up with the dad that like started a business, went back to school, was a real estate agent. So my life was like completely normal. I grew up in a small town in rural Quebec. You know middle-class family. So it actually, you know, we all worked through high school and paid our own school. And it was like, to be to be fair, I'm super happy that we had the path that we had. But uh, I'm sure my dad would have liked to have played a little later <laughs> in the 80s when the, the salaries were a little better. But yeah, he played, he was up and down from the Hershey's, the minors to the majors for about, you know, eight or nine years. Um, Few his last few years he had a lot of points he was doing really well and then he fractured his leg pretty badly and it ended his career so he came back uh, we came back to Montreal uh, to Montreal well, I say Montreal but rural like a, a town about an hour away um, so yeah but he was a, a hockey player which yeah small town francophone in a big U S city but yeah so that was his and and I don't know if your dad is still with us or not yes. but what is his name. Mario Faubert, which is funny because uh, he's, uh, I don't know if you know the comedian Sugar Sammy. He's a Montreal comedian. But uh, so he's Mario and he played for the Penguins. And, and he, there's been a few memes that Sugar Sammy has done with his my dad's hockey card where it says the forgotten Mario because Mario Lemieux oh. who's like. <laughs> and so we, we teased my father, but <laughs> he's the, the unknown Mario from the Penguins. The other Mario, right. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I'm glad you told me about that because I didn't know about your dad. But it's funny because we grew up, it was when, before we were born. So we, like, it's it's this kind of like, altered universe that they tell us about that we were never really part of but it's a it was it's it's cool it's a very cool story of my parents absolutely yeah absolutely and and so did you have a pet when you were young that that was your first moment of 
I want to be involved in animals or did you grow up close to agriculture or where was that animal connection for you that started the spark of I care so much about animals? Um, so I grew up in an area that's mostly dairy cattle. So okay. most people that I went to school with were on dairy farms. Um, so everybody had a barn with kittens and the dogs and everybody had, you know, my grandfather had a farm um, and my Dad, I don't think he's a huge cat fan, so he would pretend he was allergic. So we weren't allowed a cat. And they really didn't want a dog because my dad, he's kind of a sensitive soul. And he lost a dog and he just didn't want to go through that again. They had a lot of dogs when we before we were born. And he was just like, oh, it's too hard. It's too hard. Uh, but every year for my birthday, I asked for a dog forever and ever and ever. I had like, my mom laughs, I had pet corn cobs and I had like every bug you could possibly imagine in mason jars in my room like it was just and so at one point they were kind of like we need to get this when I had my pet corn cob (laughs) I think that's when they were like we got to get this girl a a, a pet and then I I had a pretty bad femur fracture in grade three and I was hospitalized for a few months and I was in traction and so my dad was just like I'll get you whatever you want and I was like a dog and so he snuck a dog into the hospital to (laughs) the nurses coordinated it all and so I got a dog when I was in grade three it took a broken femur but I got my dog (laughs) whatever it takes yeah whatever it takes it was like a good plan Kelly that it was worth it. Yeah, it was and, worth it. And was the dog a mutt? What was this beautiful dog's name? So I remember, I don't even remember what the show was, but there was a show in the 80s that played. It was a Canadian show with a German shepherd, the little hobo. The little, remember? Oh. <laughs> so yes. I wanted the little hobo. <laughs> so you wanted a German shepherd. Yes, yeah. But so my parents like brought home a German shepherd, but it was like such a mutt that it was like basically every dog, which actually I'll go on. This is official. The more your dog's a mutt, the less health problems it'll have. The muddier, the better. So for all you people out there, the muddier, the better. <laughs> um, and so we called it Jesse. And it was, a, in hindsight, mostly border collie. But there was a bit of everything in it. Yeah. And how long did Jesse live? Jesse lived till I was in grade seven. Got hit by a snowblower, was paralyzed. And so he had to be put down. Yeah. Yeah, it was sad. It was sad, but actually it's funny because I remember that And I'm able to talk to parents because I get so many parents that have to decide what they do with the kids when they have to put down a family pet. And so it's, I always say like, even Dante now, like Dante has something called a multiple myeloma, which is a cancer. And so we're kind of navigating that. And, uh, oh God, I'm going to get emotional. (laughs) It's all right. It's all right. I I mean, I've gone through this too. And and it never is, it's never easy bringing it up. So I'm sorry if I've triggered a whole bunch of stuff. It's important and it's important for people to know, but like the beauty of my job is like, I have to be with people to the very end with their pets. And I always say like, Dante's been with us for 13 years and he's on borrowed time. Like I've never met a Mastiff this old, right? So like every day is a blessing with him. But the fact that we've gone through this, it makes me a better vet because I understand my patients. I understand decisions. I understand the finances. I understand managing medication at home. And like, I always tell Dante, like he, I have, a, I got a cat too called Bentley. Poor Bentley, I never talk about it. Um, but like having dogs, being a pet owner and having them go through things makes you a better vet. And I like, just like, you know, having kids probably makes you a better pediatrician and like having gone through a trauma makes you a better, you know, trauma doctor or having gone through personal struggles makes you a better psychologist. Like all of it helps you learn. And the fact that, you know, so we're going through these things now and I keep saying, 
and it's a blessing. Like every day he's with us, he's a blessing. He's actually doing great. Like I, I cry just because I don't know. We talked about Jesse. We talked about everything, but I, he's doing great. And it's, he's, he teaches me things every day and he makes me a better vet. And like everything he teaches me helps hopefully hundreds and hundreds of other families because it's going to help me make decisions and help me walk them through decisions. And, um, but yeah, so, but that's part of being a pet owner. This is like a huge part of our job we don't talk about. Like, like I, I do euthanize a lot of animals and it's like, I have to walk families through a, a lot of final decisions. And it's, uh, yeah. it's, we are, when you're at work, you're a little less emotional. You're more taken away from it. But, yes. um, but it's a huge part of our job and it's a job like that's, if you think of over the course of your career, how many people that you have to help end the life of their pet, it's something that like it, it, it weighs heavy on you, you know, so for sure. It's a very brave piece. It's a very brave piece. Yeah. And I always say, and I always tell people like, while we're on this very morbid topic, <laughs> yes, and then if we'll I can get give it and go, anybody yes. a word of advice is that you are always going to have this decision to make for your pet. And it's inevitable. And so there's always a lot of guilt and there's a lot of shame and there's a lot of, I wish I had what ifs. But I always say it is as important a decision as any other decision you make in your pet's life, if not the most important, because it's up to you to know when enough is enough. And it's always hard when you're in it. So I always tell people, you have to sit down with those involved and you guys have to decide what criteria for you personally is when your dog is no longer well or your cat is no longer well, like when it's no longer walking or eating or or like what are the criteria for you? And you write it down and you put it away because it is impossible to make that decision when you're in the thick of it. And also to know that whether it's today or tomorrow or in three months or in four years, you're never going to get out of that decision, the decision that you're going to make to end it. It's always going to fall on your shoulders. And so you've got to do it bravely. As it's It's... Brave, I mean, brave is what? It's doing something that you're afraid of and doing it anyway, right? And, yes. And that's what it is to decide that you're going to take that responsibility on your shoulders. And so as as much as, you know, it, people often tell me, I don't know how you do it. In, in some ways, I'm like, it's a gift I can give to animals that are suffering. And that's really how you have to look at it. It's like suffering in the wild is not always... I mean, it's not great, right? There's a lot of suffering and I get to av- like help your pet avoid all that. And that's the way. Yeah. I didn't know we yeah. were going to go this way, but. <laughs> no, I didn't either, but it's all part of what you do. And yeah. I think it's really, really important. And what you've just said to me after having five dogs, I had never thought about doing that in, in the clarity of when the dog is well and young, sitting down with all of the various family members and stakeholders and saying, what is the criteria? Because you're right. It's when you get there, you don't want to play, quote unquote, a higher being. Yeah. And what I've always done, what we've always done, because we've always had a great relationship with our vets, is look at them and say, if this was your dog, what would you do? So I always wonder... People ask me that all the time, and I'm like... And does it work? Is it a good question? I mean, or is it just you give them the professional answer because that's what needs to happen, and you can see that within the animal? Well, when I was younger, I would say, I can't be responsible for their decision. But now, right. I I tell them the truth. And I was yeah. like, should I? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But if they're asking me, it's because they want to know. And 
And I tell them, I was like, we are different people with different values and different budgets and different, but, um, but I do have more experience. I know more how this is going to play out. I know what it means it entails. And it's a bit unfair to put that responsibility on someone that, that doesn't know what the next few months are going to look like. So I think now that I'm a mom and I've, I have a busy life and I, I, I'm, I have more experience. I, I do. I answer that question now. And I think, uh, I think that's okay. I appreciated it. We had to say goodbye to our 12 year old golden retriever this past March. And we looked at our vet and said, if this was your dog and she happened to have had to say goodbye to a golden retriever recently, what would you do? And she said, um, I'd do it right now. Mm. Um, because, you have about 24 to 48 hours in my humble estimation. And if the dog goes into a medical distress, then that's going to be incredibly difficult for the dog first and for you second. Mm. So let's just make this happen now. And we said, if that's your advice, we trust you. We've trusted you with this animal for 12 years. So of course. Mm. <laughs> Thank you for telling us all your stories. I think we could just continue this coffee in Montreal. <laughs> For hours and hours and hours and hours. Now, here comes the fun promotion piece. I would love you to offer to our listeners a couple of things. First of all, if they're really interested in trying out the Just Ones by Kelly the Vet, where can they do that? And could they use the promo code to get a, a little deal off their first purchase? I'll, I'll hand it to you for that. Yeah, if you go to the Silverpaw website... Or even the easier, maybe you can either, there's two ways, go go to silverapawdog.com and then you'll have the treats up there and you can just click on them and there'll be a discount code is a, uh, oh, I'll send it to you. <laughs> it's Breaking Brave, all small. As I said, it's the name I don't of the do show. any it's, of the business side. You know, that's um, okay. I got that for you. Breaking Brave, all smalls, no caps, all one word, Breaking Brave. Um, or you can just, if you can't remember, just go to. Kelly the vet, and it'll bring you to the page automatically, and the treats will be there. And uh, I talk about them. There's a little blurb there about why I made them and what my inspiration was and everything. And then, yeah, so, uh, yes, you can get them on our website. They're also available in boutiques across Canada. Um, we have a, a multi-pack that you can get on on Costco, but it's like you have to – it's like a huge – one of those huge multi-packs. Um, and yeah, so they're, they're great. They're, they're one ingredient. There's nothing in them. So there's no preservatives. They're oven dried really slowly for many, many hours to as like the kill step for bacteria. Um, and there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing in them. Because even though most allergies are to proteins, some dogs still with a hypoallergenic treats and foods, sometimes they still get flare-ups and inflammatory conditions. And so I wanted something completely pure. Um, Love it. So Breaking Brave is the promo code, and it's a 20% discount off your first purchase of Just Ones by Kelly the Vet. Now, Kelly, how can we support you? How can we follow you? How can we... If the listeners have fallen in love with you as much as I have this morning during our conversation, here's your opportunity to tell people how to connect with you. <laughs> so I, I I do have an Instagram page and it's at Dr. Kelly the Vet. I'm trying to be active. <laughs> I go through moments. Um and it's yeah, but it's it's like it's a personal page. It's cool stories from work. It's uh it's really about like 
my products. It's mostly about me, my family, my kids. Um, so yeah, so it's at Dr. Kelly, the vet. Um, and we were building a whole website through Silverpaw. So where I'm going to, because we have a lot of really cool uh, like health products coming out where I need to give more information. So I'll be talking about benefits and how to use them and, and why. And and uh, I've been writing articles for a blog. And our, our goal long-term is to create kind of like like a live strong, but for pets, where you can basically a, a source you trust to get information on any kind of pet related topic. Um, just kind of free information there to help people kind of navigate having a pet. Um, and so that will be, yeah, kellythevet.com. Um, but for now, yeah, follow on Instagram and I'll be able to direct you when all that's ready. <laughs> And please write your Poppy Pandemic book. I don't oh. know when. So, I don't yeah. know when. <laughs> so please write that too. And please come back and tell us how all this is going. It's, uh, it, yeah, it's, uh, so, oh, this is what, okay. I okay. need oh. stories from people okay. who have adopted puppies during the pandemic. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know if you've ever read like Ina Mae Gaskin's yeah, so her whole beginning, so we could get into that, but if we want to talk about bravery, we could go on that topic one day. But um, her whole beginning of her book is all stories of other people who have who have gone through labor, right? And so she has like half her book are stories, and then the other half is talking about it. And so the idea was to have a, a whole beginning section, stories about people who adopted during the pandemic. Why, how it went, what they did, the pros, the cons, the ups, the downs, the how it helped them, and just kind of get a whole bunch of stories. So um, if you go on my Instagram, there's call, you'll see I have posts about, please send me at this email uh, your stories. And it could be 100 words, it could be 500 words, but if anybody wants to send me a story they think would warm the heart or a hard story or any kind of story about adopting during the pandemic, I would, it would help this book come to fruition. <laughs> I am lacking stories for the moment. That's amazing. And, and so Kelly, if in case somebody just wants to come to you directly on your, on your email, can you just tell us what that is now before we say goodbye? Yeah, it's kelly at silverpawdog.com. Perfect. Yeah. I cannot thank you enough for all your time. I feel guilty because I'm thinking you should be with your kids. You should be walking Dante. You should be inventing new products. You should be <laughs> saving lives. Thank you for the gift of you and for the gift of veterinary medicine and all you do because as a pet owner, you're truly incredible. And I hope we do have the chance to meet and have a coffee in Montreal. I think day. that'd be great. I'd be great. Thank you very much for having me. It was really fun. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, MarilynBarefoot.com. You can also find me at Marilyn Barefoot. That's it for today. See you next time.